all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. So I'm working on the gut. I'm working on the adrenals. I'm working on the thyroid. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put this all together, right? But I haven't gotten to the root. Why are the adrenals that way? Why is the thyroid that way, right? And you blame it on, you know, if it's a woman in, in, you know, who has young kids, you blame it on the kids. You blame it on not enough sleep. You blame it on the diet, right? So I did all that. And, and listen, sometimes you clean up the diet, you clean up the gut, their immune system gets better, and they're better. Join us almost every Thursday and this week, Friday, on iTunes, Alexa, and coming soon, Facebook Live. We're going to try for Tuesday evening, not try for, the next live session is going to be Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Yeah, coming up next Tuesday on Facebook Live. We did one episode as a test run. It turned out pretty well. We're going to see if we can't move everything over, depending on our guests, to a weekly show. The live show. That way you can ask your questions of the guests. I think you're going to really like that format. It'll be fun. It's, it's going to be a ton of fun. Here at Lime Ninja Radio, we encourage you to fight Lyme like a ninja and think outside the tick. You see, Lyme disease causes all kinds of secondary problems, and focusing just on killing bugs can lead to diminishing returns. For example, if you've ever had the thought that heavy metal toxicity might be blocking your recovery and making you sick, Chances are you could be right. And if that's the case, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and claim a free coupon for the Myers Detox course. We're partnering with Wendy Myers. I'm studying with her right now about hair mineral analysis to take a look at heavy metal toxicity in folks. And we've got a special deal on her detox course. The way you get extra 40 bucks off uh, the price. So it brings it way down. So going over to LimeNinjaRadio.com dot com check it out there's no what there's no risk just check it out there's no downside no downside yeah and if you think you have heavy metals it's a good way to begin to assess that and then get some strategies on how to clear those out of your body if you haven't figured this out by now hi i'm your host mckay rippy and this is episode number 264 with mast cell expert dr tanya dempsey Really, really enjoyed talking to Dr. Dempsey. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and a great big shout out to all you longtime ninjas. You're the reason we have more than half a million downloads. McKay and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lyme Ninja. And as you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join in from all over the world. And this week at number 10, we do a top 10 list, is Mississauga, Canada. Number 9, Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania. Number 8, Houston, Texas. Number 7, Rochester, New York. Number 6, Chicago, Illinois. Number 5, Ashburn, Virginia. Number 4, Denver, Colorado. Number 3, non Tay, France? How about Nantes? Nantes, okay. I don't know. Send an email, correct us on our pronunciation. Please. Number two, Hamden, Connecticut. And number one, Paris, France. Rocking it in France. Yes, we are. Do you want to be a guest on Lime Ninja Radio? Head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the guest suggestion form. And if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, then share this episode on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever your favorite social media 
platform is. And if you really like what we're doing, do us a favor, scroll to the bottom of your podcast app, give us five stars, and write a review. But if you really, really like what we're doing and want to help keep us keeping on, consider sponsoring Lime Ninja Radio for as little as one buck a month. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and click on the Sponsor Us link. Actually, it's the Support Us link. Support got to correct that. Okay. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Tanya Dempsey. Dr. Tanya Dempsey is an expert in chronic disease, autoimmune disorders, and mast cell activation symptom. Syndrome. 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 Excuse me. There are lots of symptoms, and it's a syndrome. Dr. Dempsey received her MD from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and her BS from Cornell University. She uses integrative medicine to get to the patient's root cause of their illness, and her purpose is to understand why people get sick and help patients understand their body. Her practice, our monk integrative medicine, is in Purchase, New York. Awesome. I know all you ninjas are going to want to learn a lot from Dr. Dempsey, so here we go. Hi, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm so happy to be here. We're going to have a great discussion about mast cells and Lyme disease and mold and IV treatments and your kind of 360-degree way of looking at patients and treating them. I'm very interested to talk to you about that. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, to tell you all about my approach and how I see these very complex complex patients that that need a lot of a lot of attention and um, they're not getting it from the medical establishment as far as I can see. So do you get referrals or how do people find you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, a little bit of uh, a few different things. Um, you know, I speak a lot. So I'm out there um, in, in the community and around the country, even around the world, speaking all over the place. And, uh, you know, uh, either patients or clinicians who see me, connect with me, send patients to me. Um, and, but there, I have a, I have a big referral base in my actual patients, you know, the patients who have been seeing me and trust me with the care of either themselves or their family members. And I'm so fortunate to have these patients who, who believe in me and want me to help their other family members or their other friends or, or neighbors, et cetera. So it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a big process and, uh, but I'm, I'm really fortunate. To have that. Yeah, that's awesome. I like to say that Lyme disease is diagnosed over the backyard fence. It's neighbor to neighbor, still, unfortunately. Now, how did your practice become aware of Lyme disease? Because not every physician is, I don't want to say woke, but woke to Lyme disease. No, I know. Well, you know, it's an interesting story. Um, if and I if I can share it, it's it's as I look back on the experience, I know that things happened for a reason. I know I was in a certain place at a certain time, and I knew that this was meant to be. You know, I um, I was speaking at a, at a conference, so I had started. I'll sort of backtrack a little bit. 
Um, I was with, I was practicing medicine in a large multi-specialty practice in Westchester County, New York. And I was, um, you know, I would, what I was seeing was that I was not helping patients the way I really thought they deserved to be helped. And what I was seeing is that they had things that I couldn't always figure out with the tools that I had. And so I would start digging and digging and digging and, um, you know, eventually realized that I needed to be on my own and I needed to do it in a way that would um, would help more people. And so I started, I called it an integrative medicine practice and, and I'm located in Westchester County, New York, which is really a hotbed for Lyme disease. Right. So I had had Lyme patients. Of course, I had a few that I was treating actively at that time, um, that I started the practice, but I didn't appreciate the epidemic that was going on right next to me, right under my feet until I was speaking at a conference with, you know, I consider him the world's expert in Lyme disease, Richard Horowitz. And he was speaking on Lyme and I was speaking on my topic at this conference. And I listened to him and I got chills and I thought, oh, wow, this is big, but I don't know. I don't know if this is what I'm missing. And, you know, he came over, we talked about, he wanted to hear about my practice. And I said, you know, that, um, you know, I was integrative, I was doing this and that. And he asked me how, you know, how much Lyme I was seeing. He was assuming that in Armonk, New York, Westchester County, I was seeing a lot of Lyme. And I said, no, I have a few cases. And I'll, I'll never forget the way he said it. He doesn't forget it either. He just, he looked at me, he said, no, you don't. I, I don't? No, <laughs> you have a, a lot of cases. You're just you're not tuned in. You're not, you're not picking it up. And I'm thinking, but I thought I was, and I'm asking these questions and I'm, I'm being, you know, really open-ended with everything. I'm trying to get the history and the questionnaires I'm using and what am I missing? And, you know, very, very quickly, I mean, within two weeks, I realized what I was, what was happening. And as so what yeah. were you missing? I was missing chronic tick-borne diseases and, and what because they, they had a, Already had a code, an ICD code, or something else? You weren't going back? Well, no, now I was. Before, what I mean is they would come in. I'll give you an example. Yeah. They'd come in. They're a little tired. They're a little achy. They're not, they're not functioning the way they need to. Their thyroid is off. Their adrenals are off. Their hormones are off. Okay? And I look at that, and as you know, an integrative slash functional medicine doctor, I know what to do with that. And they have gut issues, right? So I'm working on the gut. I'm working on the adrenals. I'm working on the thyroid. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put this all together, right? But I haven't gotten to the root. Why are the adrenals that way? Why is the thyroid that way, right? And you blame it on, you know, if it's a woman in, in you know, who has young kids, you blame it on the kids. You blame it on not enough sleep. You blame it on the diet, right? So I did all that. And, and listen, sometimes you clean up the diet, you clean up the gut, their immune system gets better. And they're better. And, you know, and maybe they are on a little thyroid and they come back and they say, okay, you know, that, that did it. And you feel like, you know, you've been really, you know, successful with that patient. But there were others. You'd help a little. And then there's something you're missing. There's something else. They're still not better. They're still not where they need to be. Um, and that's those are the cases they would come back in and they'd say, yeah, I don't know. And now I'm having this weird uh, ringing in my ears. The tinnitus is now, you know, that's weird. And I'm a little dizzy. 
And then, uh, and then the light bulb, the light bulb just goes off. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so then it becomes clear that, that my former patients that I was treating for other things probably had underlying tick-borne diseases as the, as the trigger. Some of them where it's active and it has to be treated and some of it, maybe it's not the disease that has to be treated right now, but you need to understand why it happened and you treat the consequences. It depends on each patient. But that's really what happened. And as the new patients started coming in, and as they saw that I was in tune to this, you know, then it snowball, snowballs. Everyone knows now that, that that's my specialty, that I, that I can identify, diagnose, and treat tick-borne diseases. So before you came the neighborhood Lyme doctor, and you were just, I call it through the looking glass, right? Now you can see how much of your practice became Lyme instantly, kind of before the referrals started just flooding in? So let's say I go from 5 or 10%, right, a few cases, to 40% probably in, I don't know, three months, and then 70% in a year. And I saw Richard Horowitz a year or two later after that conference, and I went up to him and I said, remember what you said? And that's all I had to say. He looked at me, smiled. He said, I remember. And what do you think? And I said, oh my goodness. I think 70% of my patients have Lyme disease or, or, or related tick-borne co-infection. And, um, and he said, yep, you got it. Keep going. And yep. Yeah. yeah. We, we like to say here on this show that Lyme, covers anything, that type of infection, stealth infection. Because, I mean, we can spend hours just listing every time we speak. You know, and I know from a physician's point of view, it's important to distinguish. But when we say Lyme, you could feel comfortable. Tick-borne infection and maybe a few other things too. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm glad to hear that because I, I think of Lyme as an umbrella term in what we do. You know, to be official, of course, you know, Borrelia is Lyme and Bartonella is another thing. And, and there are some things to distinguish. You know, when I when I have to during this conversation, I'll say this is a Bartonella related, you know, thing. But but generally speaking, yeah, I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. You know, it really tweaked me here at Upstate Medical. They put out a press release about eh, two months ago, three months ago, saying that we've discovered this new infection that's worse than Lyme, and it's Borrelia miyamotoi. It's like, really, guys? It's like you, it's what you've been missing all along, and now you're covering yeah. your rear end, saying, "Oh, we've discovered this new thing." <laughs> it's old news. We already knew about it. <laughs> it's so old news, and they're like, "Wow, we're so great." No, it's like you're late to the party by about twenty years. Yeah. Now, on one side we have Lyme, on the other side we have mold. Kind of in the middle connecting these is mast cell activation. So tell me how you see those three fitting together. So I think it's important to understand that, you know, there's, there's the environment. Um, and that could include infections that are coming in from the environment. It, it could include mold and mycotoxins and other environmental chemicals and VOCs. Um, and then you have the host. You have the person 
right, that has to deal with all that. And so some of what we, we need to realize that there is a genetic component. And then there's something called epigenetics. That's the environmental um, uh, assault on the DNA, basically changing expression. So we have genetics that dictate how our immune systems work. Um, they, they give us uh, risk for autoimmune diseases or risk for cancer or whatever it is. You, you may never get any of those things, but if you have the right exposures and the right epigenetic effect, you can develop those things. So I always think it's important to understand the, the host that is coming from. And I think it's important because there are lots of people out there. I believe that if I pulled, I always say this, if I pull 50 people off the street and bring them into my office or a hundred people or a thousand people, and I draw blood on them and I do, you know, the best lab out there to detect tick-borne diseases, I would guess that in the area that I'm practicing, 80 to 90% of them will have a positive something. Lyme, Barnella, Babesia, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, something. Some of them are not sick. Some of these people are not sick at all. Some of them are sick but are, are functioning and have little things that come and go so they see a regular doctor, and some are very ill, right? And the question is, why is that, right? That's kind of what I'm spending my career trying to understand. Why are, these, are some patients so sick, and how do we get them to, be, to get better, right? So um, I think about the genetics. So in many cases where I see chronic Lyme that's severe, I see a predisposition early in life for either immune dysregulation of some kind, they get frequent strep infections, they get um, allergies, uh, they're allergic to the dog, they're allergic to the cat, they're, they get a lot of rashes, they have stomach aches, they've been constipated from, from the minute they were born. There's something about the, the flavor of their presentation that I, in early age, that I could see that there's already a setup. I'll call it a setup, okay? And in many cases, the mast cells are involved in that process, okay? I think that mast cell activation syndrome for most patients, for many of the patients, I should say most, but many of the patients I see started very early in life. They had that predisposition for their immune system to react in that manner. Over time, they had insults to their body that, that caused the mast cells to get more reactive, to, you know, I'll use the term mutate in a way. And every time they have an assault on them, they get worse and, and it escalates with time. So let's take somebody who has some mast cell priming early on in life. Maybe that's genetic. Then maybe they grew up in a moldy house, in a damp basement. Um, they remember being sick a lot. Then they move somewhere else and they either move into another moldy place or it's a better place and they're healthier and they're healthy for a while. Then they move to upstate New York and they get a tick bite that they didn't know about. They're lucky if they know about it, but most, most of the times they don't know or they've been infected with something. Then they get worse again. And, and, and they're living in a, in, a, in a home that might have a little mold. It's not as bad as before, but it's a little mold and it's an infection, and it's an immune system that was already probably primed for this. 
you get this sort of recipe for mast cell activation syndrome. And then the mast cells are off to the races. They are just reacting. They, they start reacting. First, they're reacting appropriately. Their job, mast cells, are your first line of defense for the environment. They help fight off foreign things, foreign bacteria and parasites and yeast and mold and all that. So they're doing their job. They're trying to help you. You were infected. You had some mold. But at some point, they become inappropriate in this disease, MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome. And now, now they are reactive. They're reacting constantly and putting patients in a state of, of severe debilitation. Because once those mast cells go, and if they hit the, the wrong parts of the body, it's, it can be very, very severe. So I, the way I see these processes is that they're big triggers. If you don't deal with the triggers, you're not going to, to get better. So if there's active Lyme and if there's mold, you've got to eliminate the triggers. Otherwise, you're not going to get better. And, and so those will be taken care of. But at the end of the day, you might still have mast cell activation syndrome. And I think this is the most frustrating piece in the patients that I see who have had chronic Lyme and they've been sick for a long time and they've tried IVs and they've tried antibiotics and they've tried every protocol out there and, and they've been to Germany and they're still sick. Okay. And why are they still sick? And so the question I over, always have is, is it because the immune system has already become dysregulated and the mast cells are cannot be controlled and until you control them, they're going to act like you still have Lyme? I mean, the symptomatology, must have, much of the symptomatology that we see with the BCL, Lyme, Bartonella, I believe is through the mast cell. I believe that what you're seeing is the mast cell manifestation of the infection. So you can still have that without the infection because the mast cells have been primed and are reactive. So I have this, I have a question in these chronic patients. Is it mast cell activation that's underlying it all now at this point, and really the infections and the triggers and the mold is all taken care of? Or is it really that there's persistent infection? And we, we have data coming out of Johns Hopkins and elsewhere that's telling us that these bugs are persistent and, and it's very hard to treat mold and it's very hard to assure you're not in a moldy environment because mold is everywhere. And so maybe it really is that they're still sick because there's still something going on, but you still have to deal with the mast cell piece. Where do you find emotional stress and trauma and anxiety as a trigger for mast cells? I'm so glad you asked that because I, I should have mentioned that when I'm talking about and thinking about their childhood um, or their, their life timeline. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, unfortunately, very common to have some trauma. Uh, and trauma could be uh, the dog died. Trauma could be abuse. Trauma could be, it's how, uh, trauma could be a, a fight with, the, with a loved one, could be a death, right? Fender bender. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy, yep. Everybody's um, way of, of coping with trauma is different. Some of it is very genetic. There are definitely some predispositions, some genetic markers that have been found that predispose people to having a more difficult time dealing with trauma. So those are the people that I think about just genetically, their nervous system is wired a little bit differently and they have the trauma. Trauma definitely is a trigger for mast cell activation syndrome. Stress is definitely a trigger. And then you have that sort of setting the stage 
for, for the other events that happen over time. You mentioned genetics. Are you familiar with Bob Miller's work and his system of looking at genetics? A little bit. Do you yeah. use it in your practice? I don't use his. I have patients who have come to me. With his information? With that information. I think it's very interesting. I know that he looks at the histamine piece, and I know that there's some supplements that he's using, but I don't know. I can't, couldn't give you, you know, specifics. If you ever want to get into it, give me a call. Okay. <laughs> Where I'm part of his research team okay. oh. and uh, use okay. his system regularly. And it just sounds like an interest of yours. It's a good way to get into it. In fact, he's cre- he had to create his own uh, chip DNA test because it was using 23MADE data and they just kicked out a lot of the SNPs that he needs. So it's really pretty quick what he has. All right. We'll have to talk more about it for sure. Okay. Awesome. The other thing I have my notes here. Let me look. It sounds like you're talking about the cell danger response. <laughs> you giggle. I'm giggling. Yeah, I'm giggling because you hit the nail on the head. I think it is. I think we're all talking about the same thing. Pretty I think clearly. We're calling it different things. And I'm hoping there's going to be a time. I don't need to call it MCAS. I don't need to call it mast cells. It's my way of understanding it. It's what I'm seeing. But I think we ultimately all have to put our heads together and really understand what this is that we're seeing. And, and it's, it's cell danger for sure. But I think it's, it's, it's even more than that. And so how do we describe that and understand that? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I haven't read the source material yet. I've heard Neil Nathan speak a few times. I interviewed him once. I have his book. But then he's trying to popularize the concept, but I haven't yet gone to Peter Navio's work and really dive into it oh, yet. You have to. You have to. It is. I've got so much on my plate. I know. <laughs> Listen, just crawl into bed with his, with an art with his article, and you'll go to sleep. <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> That's awesome. So you begin to talk about your question, you know, is is the mass, are the mouse cells still activated? Is the immune system dysregulated from ongoing abuse over years? Or is it being currently triggered by something in the environment or endogenously? How do you begin to sort that out? And I know that probably like a week-long conversation, but what do you look at? You know, I think what we all I have are markers. So, you know, I've determined, let's say, you know, I've diagnosed the MCAS. And so I know it's there. Um, but I don't know if it's a, you know, what I'll call a primary MCAS situation or whether it's a secondary. You know, so primary is starts a childhood, these various triggers are they're they're important, they've made it worse. But the ultimate issue is really if you don't treat the MCAS, they're not going to get better versus secondary, which is, which could also include, you could have primary and secondary, you could have from childhood, but then, um, but really the the MCAS is being driven now by this environment or endogenously, like you said, and now you have to, you have to uh, deal with those. So I have the diagnosis, let's say, for MCAS. Now I need to understand the environment a little bit better and understand if that is still a driver. So, you know, I'll look at mold, mold exposure, uh, mold testing, if there's any red flag at all in, in certain markers in their blood or in their, if they have high mycotoxins. You know, I have a very low threshold to get to tell them to go get 
uh, mold inspection done on their home. And, um, and unfortunately, very often that we do find that we do find things. And in some patients, uh, they get the remediation done. They, you know, we detox them, we do whatever we can to help with the mold. And yeah, the mast cell issue goes away. I have cases like that. It is mind blowing. I have a girl who was in high school. We just, we, she had Lyme. We couldn't, we couldn't get the Lyme. We, you know, she definitely had mast cell, but guess what? The, the home was moldy. She moves out. She moves in with a grandparent for, for like a month. Her mast cell issue is gone. Her Lyme symptoms are gone. Right. So that, you know, that is somebody who, yeah, she probably has some underlying MCAS, I think just from childhood. I know that, but it was being triggered and we got away, we got the trigger away and she's better. So, um, so I have to look at that piece. Um, the infection piece is much more complicated. So it's not always very easy to, to, to understand whether it's active infection or not. And we know persistent infection exists. And how do we prove persistent infection in these patients? So what I rely autopsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, Unfortunately, it, right? Right. Yeah. So so some of it is clinical judgment, some of it is experience, some of it is is looking at markers. I'm going to look and I'm going to say, okay, let's let's put this together. Here are the symptoms. The symptoms could be, okay, I'll give you an example. Let's say acute onset anxiety depression. So you have somebody who is Somebody who has headline and Bartonella has been treated, but has some underlying MCAS, has some allergies, some other things, but is doing okay. Took the antibiotics, is doing great. Gets off the antibiotics or herbs or whatever you're using. And two weeks later, two months later, whatever it is, acute anxiety, psychosis, right? And you go, is that... MCAS, because let me tell you, mast cell activation syndrome can cause psychosis and anxiety and depression and all those things if you activate the mast cells in the nervous system. And if you have, she had an exposure, she has a nut allergy, so she ate something with a nut, she had an anaphylactic reaction, and after the anaphylactic reaction, a week later, she gets anxiety. So is it MCAS? Is it just that and the Lyme is gone? Or is it MCAS, but the infection that we treated is not gone and is persistent. And um, I have to, you know, use my clinical judgment. I'm going to look at her labs. I'm going to say, okay, we're going to get Igenix. That, that does tend to be my favorite lab. So, and if I and can I pause there? Because Igenix now has a whole menu of Lyme. Which ones do you use? Do you just use their Western blot? Do you use their protein? Chimera, what Chimera, whatever that's called, <laughs> where they put all the proteins together. What do you use? So what I've been using, because I feel like it really covers the bases, but is extremely expensive. I will say, though, that in the last few months, I've had patients who are telling me that their insurance is covering a good portion of it now. So that's a relief. But they have this panel. It's called Tick-Borne Disease Panel 6. And it, it includes the Lyme immunoblot. It includes the Lyme PCR. The tick-borne relapsing fever immunoblot, the tick-borne relapsing fever PCR, the Babesia, Babesia blancani, Babesia microti, fish and PCR, and Bartonella western blot and Bartonella fish and PCR. Um, it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna find it. If I'm gonna find, it, I'm gonna find it. Right. So if there's a PCR, if there's a fish, it's active. 
if I don't have that, I can't say it's not active. It may just not be showing. But if I have enough indicators and I have somebody who has some underlying autoimmune markers, okay, and this in this particular example, we have somebody, she has celiac disease. She has a positive ANA, low titer ANA. She's in the middle of this acute psychosis, anxiety, depression thing, and her ANA goes to, like, it triples off the charts, okay? She doesn't have an autoimmune disease, but the immune system is acting inappropriately. Could be MCAS. I always go, no, it could be MCAS. It could always be MCAS. But that, to me, raises a real red flag that there is still infection. And, and that's, and again, so this is, this is clinical judgment. This is gestalt. This is experience. I don't think that there's, you know, something that I can say, this is how I'm going to determine, you know? And I, in my practice, it's almost like front burner, back burner. Like you don't dismiss the MCAS, the mast cell activation and just say, oh, we're done with that. It can't be that we're moving on, right? Just move it to the back burner. And if we need to pull it front again, we just pull it front again. No, I, well, I, I wouldn't even do that, to be honest with you. I never you do all three. I never put it on the back burner because I can't because their symptomatology is being driven by it. And I often can't help them if they're already really reactive. And, and again, what we're seeing is that a lot of Lyme patients who didn't have MCAS early on in their disease now have it. So, and there's a whole process why that happens. So, I have to address that. I have to get their mast cells stabilized. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to treat underlying stuff. So it's actually not back burner. It's really trying to stabilize one thing so that I can go in with something else on top of it. Okay. So I said like a foundation. Yes. I think we're talking about something similar, but slightly different concepts. Now, that's great. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, you do a lot of IV treatments and there's excitement about there about IV treatments. People go back and forth. There's a lot of confusion. Tell me, well, actually tell me a little bit about IV treatments and then I have another question for you. Okay. So do you want to know about the IV treatments that I'm doing and why I'm doing them? Yeah. Okay. Or like the top three, cause I'm sure there's a whole, yeah. yeah whole menu, right. Exactly. Like why IV? to begin with? So we're talking really IV nutritional support mainly, but I do, I do, I want to mention three main things. I have IV nutritional support. These patients, either they've been on antibiotics and their gut is in not good shape and they're not absorbing nutrients, or they already have a gut issue before their treatment. Um, I see a tremendous amount of B12 deficiency, B12 deficiency causing a lot of neurologic symptoms, um, vitamin C issues like low vitamin C, low magnesium, low. So I have to get them better. And I have to, you know, I think about it again as the foundation of their, of their care. So, so using nutritional supplements like that or nutritional supplements, IV intravenously, where I bypass the gut can be tremendously useful for these patients. You know, I had, I had a patient once and she ended up having, what is it? Danlos. What's the first? Ehlers-Danlos. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And Lyme and probably eight other different things. She controlled her symptomatology with diet. 
She just couldn't find a doctor really who could do everything. She had one she liked, but the insurance company stepped on her and she had to back off. So she was really struggling. But she found some relief with restricting her diet. And primarily, she ended up doing an elemental diet. So just straight amino acids for a while. And for a while, that worked. And then she went back and got a little trigger here, there, a little trigger there. And then she found what worked was fasting. And it got to the point where any time she ate was enough irritation to activate her mast cells. It was just horrific. And, you know, she's since moved on and began to find some help. But it can get so bad. And I was begging her, it's like, go find somebody who'll give you IVs. And I wish I knew about you. Because she needed nutrition, she just couldn't eat. Yeah. It was awful. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I, I do see patients like that quite often. And it's uh, it's heartbreaking, uh, but I think there's a lot of hope. And I and I try to use as many tools as I have to help. And, and if I could just give them a little boost so that they could heal. The problem is that the very things that are going to help you heal are the things that you have to get from food. And so if you can't, then, you know, then we have the IV. And, and so I think it's, it's important. I mean, I know a lot of people are doing these IVs from like a wellness perspective and they're doing it for, you know, I don't know, hangovers and I've heard all of it, I, but I really believe that they have, they play a role in medicine. Um, and so, you know, I do a lot of, a lot of that. Um, and in that I'll mix in that with that glutathione, which, you know, can be helpful for the immune system and, and it's a natural antioxidant. So I do a lot of that. Um, secondly, I have found, um, that IV phosphatidylcholine, um, IVPC, um, Patricia Kane protocol to be extremely helpful for many of these patients. Um, they, I do find that phosphatidylcholine can help stabilize mast cells. I've also found that it can make it worse. And these patients are, no, there's no one size fits all. Everybody's different. And so I can't, I'm not going to say across the board, that's what I use, but in the right patient who, who needs some uh, detox, I know that they're fatty acid profile is off. I know that their diet is off. I know that their cell membranes are breaking down. And if their cell membranes are making breaking down, their mitochondria are breaking down and they're in a bad, they're in bad shape. So if I can use IV, uh, phosphatidylcholine, if I can get stuff in orally, great. And then, and then I supplement with, uh, IV, or if I can't do it orally, we do it IV, um, along with some other, uh, nutrients and glutathione and, um, B12 and other things, um, that can be, you know, really, really remarkable. We've seen some remarkable improvements with that. So that's a tool that I have for the right patient. Um, and third, I'll mention that this is not nutritional and I never thought I'd be doing this, but for my IV, for my, for my mast cell patients, um, sometimes they're in the middle of a flare and they really need, we need to get them out of the flare. And I know sending them to the ER is not a great solution. The ER often doesn't get what's going on. They often don't know how to treat it. Um, and although they sometimes need it. I mean, if you need to go, you go. But but there are times when I have patients who are not that bad yet. They don't need to go to the ER, but they're in a flare. And we're trying a lot of things, but we just, we're not knocking it out. I'll give them what's called the IV MCAS protocol. And it's a protocol that involves 
medications that are known to be either antihistamines or mast cell stabilizers. And we do it, we give them a lot of fluid. These patients often need more fluid. Um, they're often dehydrated. Naturally, even though they drink a lot of water, they're just not, you know, they don't have a lot of intracellular um, water. And so we, um, we give them lots of fluids, we give them Benadryl, we give them um, uh, famotidine, which is an H2 blocker, we give them Zofran for nausea, we give them a bunch of things. And, and we do it over a course of three to four hours. And I have patients who come once a week for a few weeks. And, and that IV could last them almost the full week. Like they, they do better. So I had a patient, she came every week for a couple of months. Then she came every other week. Then she came once a month. And now she hasn't come in months. In months. She's doing amazing. Now, it's not perfect. She still has to take stuff. But I got her out of the flare. The crisis, she right? Had major stressors that she couldn't deal with, major mold, major lots of stuff. I can get them out. So it's a tool that I've started using that uh, that several other colleagues of mine around the country are using as well. That has really changed things, you know, dramatically. You know, the immune system does want to come back to homeostasis, but it does get stuck. You know, sometimes it's on. The TH1 side, sometimes it's the TH2. It seems to be the TH2 is more of a sticky spot than the other one is. But when it's stuck there, it needs to be wedged back. That's right. And you right? just got to pull all the stops. You got to try, you know, all the different things. Look, I would prefer not to pump my patients full of medication, but I also would prefer that they can live their life, right, and, and get on with their day. And if I have to do it, we're going to do it. So... That's my approach. Now, you've been treating Lyme for a long time. And let's and again, Lyme with the umbrella term here. What are your go-to treatments these days? How has that changed over time? And, and what do you think is most effective? Yeah, it's changed. Oh, gosh. I think it changes every month. Um, <laughs> I, th- I, I don't know. So I am very open. Okay, that's that's part of like the way my my brain works. I like to keep an open mind, and I like to and and my experience is that there are a lot of things that can work. It just depends on the patient. So depending on where they are in their course of their illness, I can I sometimes use homeopathy, and and I've had some great cases using homeopathy, and and these are patients who already had been on antibiotics and it wasn't working right. So so that could be a tool for for some patients. Um, I use a number of different herbal protocols and, you know, I've sort of created my own combination of stuff, right? So it's my own, the Dempsey protocol. And in some patients, I can use herbs alone. In the, again, it depends on where they are in their illness. It depends on their reactivity. It depends on, um, well, there are a lot of, lot of you know, things that I, that I consider, but I have some herbal protocols that I've used that are, um, you know, pretty consistently good for some patients. And then I have antibiotics that, you know, sometimes you just have to, you know, if you have a case, uh, I have a case of a, of a gentleman who has, has a questionable diagnosis of ALS with an hygienics test that's lighting up like a Christmas tree with positives everywhere, every tick-borne disease he has. Um, and I'm not going to use homeopathy or herbals. You know, he's sick. He's deteriorating rapidly. 
I am going to pull out all the stops and I'm going to do whatever I can to get it better. And that's antibiotics. And I sometimes will use IV antibiotics. It's I use it much less now than I did two, three years ago or five years ago um, because I have some other tools that I can use. Um, I've, I have different combination of, of um, antibiotics that I use. And I have, I think the two protocols that I've had the greatest success with, well, the one I should say that I have the greatest success with, the other one is still, I don't know, the debate is on. Uh, but the Dapsone protocol uh, created by Dr. Richard Horowitz has really, really been um, transformative for a, a good number of my patients. Um, yes, some have relapsed and had to do it again, and some did it again and, and then didn't relapse and are, are, I would consider them cured. Um, some of them did much better. They're not cured, but it did. It made a big difference. It's a tough protocol, um, but that's the one that I have the greatest experience with and, and a better understanding of what the outcome is going to be. And of course, I'm sure you've heard of it, and I'm sure people know about this disulfiram uh, protocol that everyone is talking about. And I remember leaving ILADS this year in November, uh, leaving the conference, and uh, I mean, it was like everyone was buzzing about disulfiram. And um, I had already I had already treated some patients with disulfiram at that point, but I heard these testimonies. I heard people talk. I thought, okay, I'm not doing this enough. And so you know, I started using more and more. And I don't know. The verdict is out. Um, I know that there are cases um, that have have been you know remarkably successful. I have a case right now um, of a woman who has a chronic, like a polyneuropathy of some unknown etiology. Okay. So somebody thought she had CIDP, that someone said she did not have CIDP. She was over time losing her ability to walk, very active woman. Now she can't walk. She's almost in a wheelchair. She has fasciculations in her legs. She's weak. Her arms are getting weaker. She doesn't feel good. We've tried antibiotics. We've tried a lot of things. I get to the point where I'm thinking, maybe it's not infection. I'm missing it. It's not infection, right? And then I think, let's do disulfiram. She says, I want to do disulfiram. I said, let's do it, you know? And she's been on it. I mean, it took us three or four months to get up to half the dosage of what I think she needs. But so she's only on half the dosage or for her weight. So 125 milligrams a day, but it took us, again, three months to get there. She is doing incredible. She's walking. The fasciculations are getting better. It's not gone. She's not perfect. But the results are mind-blowing because there's nothing else that we've used that have, has even touched that symptom. And she was on IVIG. I mean, she was on everything. Disulfiram alone is starting to make an improvement. So I have cases like that that I think, yeah, I mean, I can't not use it. But then I have other patients that fall off a cliff. They I don't know how to explain it. I have some other colleagues that are saying the same thing. Patients seem to be getting better. They start feeling good. They're still on it. They crash on it, feeling good. We don't know. Is it a Herx? Is it some other entity? Is it related to the disulfiram? And then I've heard recently of patients who have gone off it. They're not my patients, but colleagues who've treated patients. They've been good. They come off it, and then they relapse again. Um, and crash and burn uh, coming off it after being off it for a period of time. So I don't know. I think that my, my sense is that Bartonella is the infection. 
that is keeping people sick. If it's persistent, it's mostly Bartonella, although I know Lyme is persistent as well. And I think that disulfiram doesn't hit Bartonella completely. And so I think the patients who are getting better don't have Bartonella. That's my gestalt view for the last few months. <laughs> you know, my mind, if you interview me, I don't know, in a few months, I may change my mind. Well, we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's unfortunately, I mean, you're the researcher and the clinician right now. I know there's research being done, but there are no answers. There's no clinical trials for anything. I mean, Harwitz is doing his things, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's preliminary treatments. You know, it's, it, no, it's, it won't stand up in the court of scientific medical opinion. You know, the people who want to be haters will keep hating and, and us will, with open mind, will say, ah, that's interesting. You might have something there. Now, let's wrap up. And you have a personal connection with Lyme disease. It's not just a professional curiosity of yours. Tell me about that. But it started. So, so again, interestingly, it started intellectually and also because I just want to help people. I mean, that's, that's been my mission since I was five years old when I decided I wanted to be a doctor. All I want to do is help people. So if I'm missing a diagnosis and I'm not helping people, that's, that, that makes me feel bad. So I was already in this, in this world. And, um, but, uh, my, um, what my younger son was uh, bitten by a tick. He was playing football. He was, um, came home from football practice one day. He had, well, he already had the bullseye rash. So I know that he got it in football another day, but he came home. He had, you know, this painful rash on his leg. He's like, mom, what is it? He was probably about eight at the time, seven, eight. And, um, I said, Oh no. Okay, here we go. Now I already know that, um, doxycycline is indicated. He's eight. So there's like, or seven even, and there was some debate about using doxycycline at that age. Um, so I took a chance. I did it because it's my child and I treated him with doxycycline, but then I also put him on herbs because I'm not just ever doing antibiotics alone. I've got the herbs, I've got the cyst busters, I've got, I've got, you know, probiotics, I got everything. I'm thinking I'm doing this, I'm going to do this the right way. And, um, and I treated him for several months, three months, four months. Um, he was asymptomatic and, uh, and doing well. And then he started coming off antibiotics and um, his twin sister started having some symptoms that were very, very suspicious. And of course we tested and found Lyme in her and um, coincidence, I don't know. She picked up a tick at the same time. I don't know. There are lots of, I don't knows. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, you know, we've been on a journey with them. Um, they've had very good times when they're, your Lyme is under control and they are certainly have had times when they've flared and I've worked uh, diligent. I work all day trying to get my patients better. I work all night trying to get my family better. And, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're doing okay, but it's a, uh, it's a struggle as, as people know, it is um, waxes and wanes, things wax and wane. But I think I've done the best I can at this point. <laughs> I hope as a mother, I hope I am. Yeah, you're right. We're parents till the end. 
There's no doubt about that. Were you at the Lime Mind Conference this past fall in New I, York City? I missed it, and I was so bummed I wanted to be there next year, if there is a next year. The, uh, this this was their fourth or fifth. Okay. So they've got the funding. They're going to keep doing it. Right. It's funny. The disulfiram was first mentioned at their first conference. It was almost a throwaway kind of thing. One of the reachers said, oh, by the way, we found this funny connection. We don't know what it means. But there's this old drug for alcoholism. So that's where that's the first time I heard about it. Now, one of the things, a clinical pearl, I think, from Dr. Liegner, he had his little 15-minute presentation. He was going over a case with disulfiram. Was it? I'm going to back off. I think, no, that was another one. Anyway, this patient treated mostly asymptomatic for the rest of her life, passes away, and had donated her body to science. They autopsy her and find biofilms in every single organ. Her body was riddled with biofilm. And it was made a big deal at the conference. He just kind of went on telling the rest of his stories, but I sat up and paid attention to that. It's... These biofilms, you know, are are crazy. So maybe Bartonella's just really loves biofilm or has a special different kind of biofilm or something. Oh. It'd be interesting to find uh, yeah. entomologist who knows that. Yeah. Actually, Dr. Ahern probably knows that. I should ask her. That'd be you know Dr. Ahern, yeah? Not personally. Oh, you guys need to connect too. Yeah. She is awesome. Great. And she's just right up 90 from you. Really? Okay. Then we have She's to- SUNY Adirondack. So oh, it's a couple hours away. But that, yeah. Okay. yeah. Anyway, Dr. Debsey, yes. you've been so generous with your time and knowledge. I've fallen in love with you. Oh. I mean, I wish we were closer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we're not that far, but it's, it's four hours. Yeah. yeah. So how can folks get in touch with you? How can they make an appointment? Are you still accepting patients? I mean, this is a problem with doctors like you is your calendar is so full. I know. That's that's the problem. So so here, this is where I am at the moment. Um, I am doing a lot of education. I do a Facebook Live event every month now um, where uh, they can go to my Facebook page, Dr. Tanya Dempsey. We announce it. They can look at my old um, Facebook Live events. Uh, but I find them very helpful in, in educating. We talk about MCAS. We talk about MCAS and other entities, MCAS and Lyme, MCAS and Bartonella. We've, we've covered a lot of different topics and mold and all that kind of stuff. So we're continuing to do that. Um, and uh, my website, um, www.drtanyadempsey.com and I have blogs. So my whole thing right now is I'm educating the public. I'm educating uh, clinicians. You know, I love having people come in and shadow me and I'm working on maybe eventually having a training program for it. Um, And and I'm hoping that these uh, clinicians can then go back to their practices and, and treat these patients. Because the reality is that, yes, my waiting list is, is long, um, what I'm working on is training somebody to join me. And I'm, I'm hoping that maybe there's somebody listening who wants to move to Westchester County in New York. It's a great place to live. It's beautiful here. I'm, I just built a brand new office using 
the best eco-friendly material and VOC-free. And I did everything to make sure that, you know, patients would be comfortable if they had chemical sensitivities. And we have a beautiful IV suite. And I want to train someone to work with me to help these patients and to start seeing patients on my waiting list. So, so are you looking for somebody with traditional medical training? I could. Or are you open for like a naturopath type person I'm too? I'm open. I'm open okay. to EOMD, uh, ND, PA. Um, PA, and you know, nurse practitioner. Absolutely. I'm happy to train and work together with, with some like-minded individuals who can really, really make a dent in the waiting list <laughs> for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like Dr. Hurd said, there's so many out there and there's so misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. I mean, once once you go through the looking glass, it, you see infection everywhere, especially the poor people with psychological problems. I mean, that's just heartbreaking. And they keep throwing Xanax at them or whatever they're doing, and it just doesn't help. No. No, we have an epidemic of mental illness, and I'm real so concerned that we're missing the real root cause. Okay. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great. This was great. She was saying some amazing things about treating Lyme disease at the end, but I'm actually going to go more towards the beginning of the episode when she was talking about mast cell activation syndrome. And it reminded me of our old friend, that weird goo syndrome, acupuncture thing. Chinese medicine. Yes. You know, the whole point of goo syndrome is to convey to the practitioner and the patient that it's a very difficult to treat syndrome, right? That that's, this is not something that you're going to cure, sweat it out, and then feel better the next day. This is a battle that you're in. And the image for goose syndrome is that oil has seeped into flour and mixed together, and then that the practitioner's job and the patient's job is to re-separate out the oil and the flour. As you can imagine, that's a very difficult task. So these chronic diseases where the inflammations get set up can be tough. It can be done. There is hope. It's not a life sentence, but it's not the type of thing. It's not, a, <clears throat> excuse me, an instant fix, right? There's not a pill for it. There, You have to do many different strategies over time and change and adjust. You know, that's a whole fight like a ninja and think outside the tick. You know, you got to you gotta do this like a ninja. Just a full frontal attack is just going to cause more inflammation and make you sicker. So you have to chip away at the edges. You have to be smart and sneaky like a ninja. And that's why we call this Lime Ninja Radio. <laughs> as opposed to Lyme warriors. So I understand the idea of being a Lyme warrior. You know, you got to be tough and strong and you're going out to fight this thing. But really, we want to refine that. You have to be really smart and strategic about it. So if you, by warrior you mean ninja, we're right on board. Oh, and speaking of that, so I've started, I'm speaking on Instagram. Well, no, it's, it's speaking about things that bug me a little bit. There's, there's a feed... There's a hashtag on Instagram for Lyme disease. And of course, I'm clicking on a lot of things with Lyme disease. So it says, just subscribe to this hashtag, right? So now I'm getting all these hashtags. And to be honest with you, most of these pictures are like a beauty pageant. 
There are all these, That's you know, Instagram for you. Yeah, it's it's, but it's ridiculous. It's all these people, and I don't read the exact what's going on with everybody. Maybe everybody's recovered, but they're all t- young twenties, young women who look fabulous in fabulous places, and and talking about Lyme disease, and you know that must just for those of you out there who are really struggling, that must just be depressing. So when that don't just don't do it. It's just. It's not fake news. I'm not accusing anybody of being fake news, but the you know a little bit goes a long way if you have a friend to inspire you, something like that. But to be hammered every day by people, you know, theoretically talking about Lyme disease, but really they're talking about their fashions. That's just you know where they're you know upside down yoga poses and stuff like that. That's just when you can't get out of bed, when you don't have enough energy to brush your teeth. I mean, it's just it's the the distance between the two is too great. We, one of the things we, we haven't talked about in a while is a media diet. You know, this might be something to consider. If you find yourself looking at those things, you know, if they're your friends, that's fine. I get it. So maybe one or two of those friends in your feed. But don't subscribe on Instagram to the Lyme disease hashtag. It's Unless you want to check up on what the latest fashions are. All right. That's my rant for today. Okay. We usually don't get on soapbox rants, but <laughs> today I did. Do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything, send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And if you're still listening, you're either a glutton for punishment or you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio. Either way, hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, do us a favor. Scroll down to the bottom of your podcast app and leave us a review. Yes, we thank you and love reviews. And last, if you really, really like what we're doing and want to help keep us keeping on, consider sponsoring Lime Ninja Radio for as little as $1 a month. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and clink, clink, click on the support us link. And last, this really is last, and last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with... The Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know a ninja once gave a box of old watches to a group of kids? They are now known as the Power Rangers. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.